Now it's time for the Disney View Podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his Grand Circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, mantenganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. Well, if you've listened to my podcast for any length of time, you know that I love to talk about the history of Walt Disney World. I think the entirety of the property and kind of how it was conceived all the way up until it was built and really into today where we're talking about some of the things that are historical and kind of how they came to be is really fascinating. I think there's a lot to be said for how we got here and some of the things that Walt Disney had in his imagination that got us to here. And in particular, I think Epcot is one of those things that in the historical context really kind of fits everything together. It really is all about Epcot in some way. So if we think back to history, Walt Disney had this idea that he wanted to create an experimental prototype city, or perhaps it was community. You heard him say both in the video he created. But the most exciting, the far, the most important part of our Florida project, in fact, the heart of everything we'll be doing in Disney World, will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. We call it Epcot, spelled E-P-C-O-T. Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. That's right, he actually said both in the video. Now remember that this video was a promotional tool for the Walt Disney Company to help sell the entirety of the uh, property that they were having that they were going to call Walt Disney World. And so it was kind of bodged together in a way, and there's some parts that are Walt's ideas and some parts that are the company's ideas because it was made around the time of Walt's death. So it's kind of interesting the way it all fits together. And some of it is probably a little bit of hyperbole. Some of it is probably truth. It's hard to know where the line is exactly. But what we do know is that if you look back in history, there were some interesting times in history, both in this country and in other countries, where we had people getting together and building a community where they worked together for a greater good, for some cause. Now, one simple example, though it's a little over the top, is the Manhattan Project, where they built the first atomic bomb the U.S. government got together some of the best and brightest scientists and brought them to Los Alamos and got them together to start thinking about the atomic bomb and what it would take from a theoretical standpoint to build it, and then actually building them and testing them. Now, without getting into the right or wrong of what they did there, what was interesting was that they all came together, they worked together in a community, their families lived there, they lived there, and they were able to create some very creative ideas and come up with something that that no one had ever done before and created something interesting. Now, there are other examples of this in history, but that's the one that's kind of the easiest to grasp. This group of people getting together and living and working in one place to come up with something that was unique. And somewhere in the back of my mind, I had this feeling that that's what Walt Disney was trying to do. Something like that, where he could bring people together to live and work in a community and actually create some of the best and brightest ideas. If you look at some of the history of the Walt Disney Company, uh, back when he was building Disneyland and when he started to uh, work on the 1964 World's Fair, some of the greatest innovations came from the fact that he was putting people together 
working together, living together, and in a community to create something that he really thought was going to be tremendous and really wow people. And so he did all these things, and he had people together, and they were working, and they were collaborative, and they were doing the things. And it was really kind of an interesting approach to uh, how to work that I don't think really in large corporations people had done before. So he had this influence of outside money coming in as well. So he had a cash flow from General Electric, and he had money coming in from Pepsi-Cola, and he had other sources of income that were helping to generate and spawn these ideas. So his group, the Wed Designers, were working together to actually create something that was really kind of remarkable. And they had an influx of cash that made that easier to do. And at the end of the day, they created something that was a nice little promotional vehicle for whatever the company was, but also told the story and did something more. And I think he got the idea to take that further and say, well, what if we always had that collaborative environment? What if we gave a research park, essentially, where people could come together and they could bring in some money, some personnel, and we could provide some oversight people too, and we'll give you the space, and we could all work together to come up with something that really does well. And if you look at it from that perspective, it all makes sense. Now, the logistics and specifics of how he planned to do that, I think that's pretty much anybody's guess. Yes, he had this great idea for something he called Progress City, and there was a giant model that was, there's just a piece of it left in one space that's, you can see from the uh, Tomorrowland Transit Authority if you ride that in the Magic Kingdom. And you go into one room and they talk about the uh, Metro Retro Society uh, looking at Walt Disney's vision of the future. That's one piece of the model, and the model is huge. That piece is enormous. From what I understand, the model was probably about three or four times that size originally. And that's a remarkable thing. So if you think about the perspective of he had this really great idea to build something and bring people together, it really does have some merit. So it's unclear what he was going to do himself exactly. I mean, he had some ideas, and he talked about how to make people residents and how to kick people out. A few years ago, there was a TV show on that was called Eureka. And Eureka was supposed to be set in this town on the West Coast somewhere, maybe up near Seattle in that area, um, Northern Oregon maybe. And the idea was that this group of scientists came together, and they would work for the federal government in a research lab and would actually create new and exciting things, sometimes for military use, sometimes for civilian use, but they would live in that community. And sort of the subtle undertone of that was, once they were done working on their projects and could no longer contribute to the overall good, they were asked to leave. They had essentially signed contracts to stay for some period of time until their research was finished, and then they'd have to leave and move and go somewhere else. So it's kind of interesting that the show's producers kind of overlaid a little bit of a theme in there of something like what I might envision Walt Disney had in mind, for this entirety of Epcot, where you can have people living and working together. Now, another thing that interested Walt Disney along the way was the simple fact that there was World's Fairs happening at various times throughout his lifetime. Every few years, there would be a World's Fair that would happen somewhere. And what a World's Fair was, was a means to bring together, bring the world closer together. So different countries would come and represent their country uh, in this host country. So they would bring in foods and some show buildings and some costumes and, you know, traditional wear, and they would talk about things that were related to their country. And sometimes they would have a show, and sometimes they would have an attraction, and sometimes they would have some movie or something like that. But it was a, a true world showcase in a way. So I think Walt Disney kind of took that and said, you know, there's a really good idea there, and it's too bad that they don't do this all the time, that it's only once in a while, that we could have a regular meeting of people coming together and talking about world events and talking about themselves and their culture and, and what makes them unique. Now, that's just my take on it. Whether that's actual fact or not, it's hard to say. As I said, you never really know exactly what he had in mind. He had a lot of things going on in there, and he realized that 
at some point you had to move people in and out and get things going. That's how you inspire creativity. You can't always have the same people working on the same projects all the time. Occasionally you have to change out people or you have to change out locations or you have to change out who's funding it or anything else to keep it alive and keep it moving. Epcot will take its cue from the new ideas and new technologies that are now emerging from the creative centers of American industry. It will be a community of tomorrow that will never be completed, but will always be introducing and testing and demonstrating new materials and new systems. And Epcot will always be a showcase to the world for the ingenuity and imagination of American free enterprise. I don't believe there's a challenge anywhere in the world that's more important to people everywhere than finding solutions to the problems of our cities. But where do we begin? How do we start answering this great challenge? Well, we're convinced we must start with the public need. And the need is not just for curing the old ills of old cities. We think the need is for starting from scratch on virgin land and building a special kind of new community. So that's what Epcot is, an experimental prototype community that will always be in a state of becoming. It will never cease to be a living blueprint of the future, where people actually live a life they can't find anywhere else in the world. Everything in Epcot will be dedicated to the happiness of the people who will live, work, and play here, and those who come here from all around the world to visit our living showcase. We don't presume to know all the answers. In fact, we're counting on the cooperation of American industry to provide their very best thinking during the planning and the creation of our experimental prototype community of tomorrow. And most important of all, when Epcot has become a reality and we find the need for technologies that don't even exist today, it's our hope that Epcot will stimulate American industry to develop new solutions that will meet the needs of people expressed right here in this experimental community. Well, that's our basic philosophy for Epcot. You know, taking it a little bit further, part of what he wanted to do was to bring in about 20,000 residents to live there and be a testbed for city planning and city organization. So it would be different than traditional cities. I know one thing Walt was kind of fed up with was the traditional politics you see in cities and communities and counties and even whole states. And he wanted to find a different way to approach the way you look at a community so that you could do it differently and manage it differently. Now, he had thought about making this entire thing a circle with the businesses and commercial areas in the center, with community building schools and recreational complexes around it, while the residential neighborhoods would be on the outer circles, so they'd be the furthest out. So you'd have most people coming together and working in the center part of the community, and then going outward from there to go to their homes. Now, there are many who say that this concept was originally proposed by Ebenezer Howard and his Garden Cities of Tomorrow. Now, I have no way of knowing whether Walt Disney ever read anything by Howard or met him or anything else, but it's interesting to think that maybe he sort of lifted some of the ideas from that because he really thought it was a good idea. He also saw that the uh, transportation models of monorails would help to get people long distances and that people movers like the Tomorrowland Transit Authority would get people short distances and be able to get people around to different places. But one of the key challenges that Walt Disney faced was the simple fact that you have to be creating revenue somehow. So if you buy up all these orange groves in Florida, and you plan to put in an industry and have people living there, 
you still need to build the houses. You still need to build the complexes where people are going to uh, work. You still need to do different things like that where you need to have some capital and some income in order to have the infrastructure in place. And he realized that one of the ways to do that was to build sort of a clone, quasi-clone, if you will, clone of Disneyland in this Florida property. If you look at the map of the Walt Disney World property, you'll notice that on the southern edge, there's the entrance areas where you come in through Osceola County and you're on the southern end and you're down by where the Epcot area is. And on the very northern end is where the Magic Kingdom is. And the Magic Kingdom is the thing that's the most like Disneyland. What he thought was, if he could have people come in, drive in on the southern end, be there, and then actually take a monorail over all the way over through the industrial park and into the Magic Kingdom, they could see it, they could experience it, they could be interested in it before they actually went and had some fun at his Magic Kingdom, his Disneyland East, or whatever you want to call it, and he could have done more with it at that point. So that would have been the means to have a little bit of working capital to be able to build his uh, Progress City. And also, building the Magic Kingdom helped him to convince the state of Florida to allow him a little bit of autonomy in terms of what he could do on the property that he owned. Now, as you've heard about on a previous podcast, I talked about the Reedy Creek Improvement District. That is actually something that's really interesting that really set everything in motion. Disney has the right to do pretty much anything they want with the land. They could put a nuclear power plant there. They can uh, manage their own police force. They can do a lot of things that most cities cannot do. Now, if you go back in history on my show notes page and you look for episode number 160, you'll find that I did a whole thing about the Reedy Creek Improvement District. There was a really interesting article I read from about how that government was set up and how Disney became autonomous in that sense, and that led to the idea of Epcot to come together. Now, keep one thing to keep in mind is that the uh, city of Bay Lake and the city of Reedy Creek, which is uh, Lake Buena Vista, those two cities have to have actual voting residents in them. So there are actually residents who live in those two cities. They're small cities, and they have about, I think, 15 residents each, and they both have voting power to be able to vote on all the things that happen because they control the district. Now, if I'm not mistaken, all the people that live there, the records are a little bit limited here, but if I'm not mistaken, everyone is employed by the Walt Disney Company or affiliated with the Walt Disney Company in some way, so they have a vested interest in how the Walt Disney Company does. But these, this group of about 30 or so people has the voting power and the ability to control what happens within the district. And this allows for the company to hand over control to the landowners who live on the property. So it's an interesting you know, mechanism they use to get around the laws as they stand to, that created a city or two, or you could call it a community, that allows for all of this to happen. Now, if Walt Disney himself had lived longer and lived into the time that the Magic Kingdom was open and had been able to really get into the design of Epcot, it might have gone much further. The way I see it in my head is that he had wanted to have people living and working in the community, and he also wanted to have sort of an international showcase, so it wasn't just about people in the United States. It would be about people from other countries bringing their best and brightest ideas, too. So you would have international marketplaces that would kind of go in there, sort of in a permanent World's Fair, and they would contribute to it as well. So you would essentially have an American sector where all the American workers would be living and working and living in housing and so forth, and then you would have international communities where you would bring in the international people, and they would come and work as well. So it would kind of all fit together, but you could visit those communities, and you could see things, and you could experience it, and you could see how technology was growing and evolving. It really was a good idea on paper. I have no idea how he would have made it work. And I have to admit, it rolls through my mind, and I get a little dizzy thinking about it. 
I understand the basics of city planning. I understand the basics of communities and and the way that local governments work. I, I get the general nature of that. How he would have incorporated all of these different things in there, I'm really not sure. It kind of baffles me a little bit, and I think it baffles most people. But it was an interesting idea. I mean, the man was ahead of his time, basically, and really had some clever ideas. So you never know. He might have had something in mind that would have really made this grow. So here was the problem after Walt's death. Nobody really knew what he wanted to do with this whole prototype community. Some Imagineers wanted to represent the cutting-edge technologies, and others wanted to showcase the international cultures and customs, because each of those were a component of what Walt Disney was talking about. So they had this, um, these two different models that they were working on. You've heard in some of my other shows that sometimes Disney has different groups of Imagineers or web designers or people working for the company working on competing designs, basically, that then they have to present to the senior executives, and the winning design goes on to be built. Now, that's not to say that the one that didn't win isn't built. Sometimes it's just put on the back burner and used in another space later. And such is the case here, where there was two competing designs. There was this one where it was the technology and innovation showcase, and there was the one where it was the world showcase, and they had two different models. And someone, and I think it was Marty Sklar, though he, I don't quote me on that because I'm not 100% sure it was him, but I think it was, suggested, why don't we just push the two models together and create something that's a combination of both? So the park was originally named Epcot Center, and it did have the acronym Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow because it reflected the original values and ideals of the city that Walt had proposed. It wasn't exactly what he had in mind, but it kind of brought together some of the things that he was thinking about. So we're basically in the mid-1970s. Walt Disney has been dead for around 10 years. The Magic Kingdom has been open for about five or six years. And you realize that they want to get something built. They want to continue to evolve the thought process and continue to grow the property and the presence and do something that kind of evolves the thinking a little bit and gets closer to where Walt's vision was. And now that we know kind of the history of it, I'm going to focus more on the World Showcase part, the part that was the World's Fair. And that's because you really do have two separate and distinct ideas here. And I'm going to take the one half and talk about it now, and at some point later I'll come back and talk about the technological innovations that made up the other half of Epcot Center. And I'll talk about those at another time. So from the 1975 annual report to shareholders, so the part about World Showcase reads, Beyond the scientific and technological aspects of Epcot, the project holds great promise for the advancements of international cooperation and understanding. The World Showcase, planned for opening in late 1979, will be devoted to this goal. An ongoing international exposition for which an admission will be charged, the World Showcase will communicate the culture, heritage, history, technology, trade, tourism, and future goals of the participating nations. It will consist of a coordinated series of national pavilions housed side by side in two dramatic semicircular structures. These dynamic structures will face each other across a courtyard of nations where there will be a major theater for performances by international celebrities and entertainment groups, and where parades, pageants, and special events will be staged by entertainers from the participating nations. Although these national pavilions may vary in size, each will enjoy an equal facade exposure to the guest. The entire complex will be tied together by a Disney people-moving system that will offer visitors a preview look into each attraction. Unlike a World's Fair, it will offer participating countries a permanent installation for such features as themed restaurants and shops, product exhibits, industrial displays, cultural presentations, a trade center, and even special facilities for business meetings. 
A major part of each pavilion will be the Disney-designed rider attraction, which will give guests a foretaste of an actual visit of the country. National musical groups or other performing artists could present special entertainment on a continuing basis. Each participating nation will be asked to provide the capital to cover the cost of designing, developing, constructing an attraction or, and or ride, and all exhibits, as well as the pavilion itself. It will also have the responsibility for funding the housing for its employees in the International Village. Its land lease will cover the cost of maintaining the attraction for a minimum of 10 years. The Disney organization will be responsible for area development, including the construction of transportation systems and utilities. We will also build and operate the International People Moving System, the Courtyard of Nations, and the Central Theater Facility. So there was some concept art that was also produced in that annual report. I'll put a link to the concept art in my show notes page so you can see what it looks like. But it looks like two semicircles that face each other. And there's a courtyard in the middle, and you can see where the stage shows would have been. And the people mover would have gone throughout the entirety of the area to be able to let people go around. And there was a monorail that rode up to it. It didn't quite pan out that way. It sort of grew out a little bit and became more of the facades around a lake instead of around a uh, central theater. And you only had one circle, though there is room for a second circle behind that first circle, and you could have little walkways that go back to the other, other pavilions. But really, that's semantics, because the concept was certainly there for each of the countries to have its own location and its own showplace there, where they could somehow exhibit their country, have an attraction, have some sort of show there. You may also have noticed that they were asking each country to pay for some portion of it, or essentially to have a 10-year contract to be able to provide for the maintenance of the facility. So if you think about the 10-year commitment, it's similar to what they were doing at Disneyland. When Walt Disney needed an influx of capital, he would work with a company to actually provide some sponsorship for a particular attraction, and typically those lasted for 10 years. They would have their name emblazoned on it for, for that 10-year period, and they would have some say in what the attraction was and did. So really kind of interesting because it's, it's the same concept just applied to countries instead of, to, instead of applied to individual attractions. Though each one of the uh, individual countries would have an attraction in it or some sort of a show or something. So really kind of neat. It kind of, he had the, he had the concept there. And I think it draws on what Walt Disney had already been doing up to that point. Now, of course, they didn't complete the whole of Epcot in 1979. They completed it by 1982. And part of the reason for that was because of this other piece to the puzzle. So that also took more planning and design because you essentially doubled the size of the park. And I think you increased the complexity pretty dramatically too. So very clever that they were able to put it together this way and come up with something that, uh, really kind of talked about the World Showcase Pavilions and sort of creating a permanent World's Fair because that really was something that, that he hadn't had an interest in. Now, the, the thing is, there was some talk about calling it a World's Fair instead of a World Showcase. But the problem is that there's a group called the Bureau of International Expositions, and they're based out of Paris. They actually manage and sanction the World's Fairs that happen. And as it happens, um, the World's Fair is a temporary exhibit that's brought by each nation individually. Because this would be a permanent exhibit that would be constructed by a corporation, it wouldn't qualify as a World's Fair. So while Disney did keep the BIE apprised of what they were doing and told them all about what they were doing, they were never sanctioned as a World's Fair intentionally. So it, it really had to go in a different direction and become the World Showcase. It's a little side note that just makes it kind of interesting, right? It kind of, kind of tells a little more compelling story. Now something to keep in mind. 
Jack Lindquist, who was the uh, president of advertising, publicity, and promotion and public relations for the Walt Disney Productions in the early 1980s, said that because of the difficulty of establishing any kind of a real community life in a place where there are thousands of tourists that would come tramping through every day, we could have called Epcot Center anything. But if we had opened it under another name, the media would have been asking, but when are you going to open Epcot? In an important sense, Epcot Center is the whole 27,500 acres we own there in Florida. So interesting that he kind of thought of it that way and what the name was. Now, Lindquist did go on to say at one point that Epcot would be different because it represents an attempt to attract the audience we've never felt was impacted effectively, older people without children. The expectation was that the park would eventually draw one or two million people a year in its own right and would encourage the then 14 million people who came to Walt Disney World each year to stay longer and spend more. One thing that will mark Epcot Center as adult-oriented is that it will be more complicated and take longer to absorb than anything at Disneyland and Walt Disney World. The land pavilion might take up to four hours to work one's way through it. The World Showcase pavilions were designed to go around a lagoon that they called the World Showcase Lagoon. And Disney hired Ben Ostland, who was a naval architect. And Now, Ben was inspired by European cruise boats for tourists, and he thought that a good way to get people around back and forth among the various pavilions was to take them by boat. So he joined uh, Wed Enterprises and designed two glass-top water taxis for the World Showcase Lagoon. The Friendship 1 and 2 were 66 feet long and took 18 months to construct, had no rudder and no reverse. Steering, stopping, and reversing were accomplished by propeller that rotated 360 degrees. Kind of a unique design in watercraft, if you're familiar with watercraft at all. They were built by the Walt Disney World Facilities Division and were used for transporting guests to various locations in the Walt Disney World as a shakedown period and then given a new paint job and an overhaul for the Epcot Center debut. Since then, there have been other boats that are similarly designed that take people around through the various areas between the uh, studios and Epcot and uh, the, the various hotels that are on the boardwalk. So kind of interesting how that all kind of fit together. Now, because the Disney company had referred to it as the Epcot Center, and the C stood for community in Epcot, uh, they had a challenge to try to come up with what the community meant. So they actually kind of took a little liberty here, and so they started talking about the communities as food service, merchandise, horticulture, costuming, entertainment. These were each communities, and that brought together the community aspect of it. Interesting little side note, right? And effectively, that's how we got to where we are today. Now, on future podcasts, and hopefully in the very near future, I'll be talking about each of the World Showcase pavilions, starting with the nine original pavilions and then adding the other two that were added later. I'll talk about their history, their construction, and what you can find inside them. Of course, the nine original World Showcase pavilions are Mexico, China, Germany, Italy, the American Adventure, Japan, France, the United Kingdom, and Canada. Shortly after Epcot Center opened, there was information put out there that coming soon to World Showcase were Israel, Equatorial Africa, and Spain. We'll take a look at those in a future podcast and how they fit together, but it's interesting how they didn't actually come to be, and yet two others did. Epcot Center celebrates human achievements and innovation born from imagination. It is a showplace dedicated to entertain, we hope, with a purpose. Our goals for Epcot Center are quite clear. We want to first entertain, then inform and inspire all who come here, and above all, to instill in our guests a new sense of belief and pride 
in mankind's ability to shape a world that offers real hope to people everywhere in the world. So that's it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and this look back into history of how Epcot Center came to be. Now remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View Podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there, please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company.